Thank you for tuning in to another edition of the Business of Fun podcast. I am your host, Dave Wakeman. Today's episode is brought to you by Booking Protect, the global leader in refund protection. If you sell live tickets, you should check out Booking Protect. You can offer your guests peace of mind in their purchase. You can offer them a better customer experience, and you can also increase your revenue. To find out more, visit BookingProtect.com. My guest today is a good one. It's Eric Fuller, who is the CEO of Yo Seats. Now, if the name Eric Fuller is not familiar to you, what he is doing might be. Eric's known for his lawsuits, including one that he filed against ScoreBig for their um, practice of not paying brokers in a timely manner. And now he's suing Ticketmaster, who the lawsuit alleges used exchange rates to underpay brokers for tickets sold in Canada. Um, I've heard from many people, many brokers in the secondary market, that the practices that um, Eric alleges in this lawsuit are things that they also experienced. So I wanted to have him on and talk about some of the things that are going on with his lawsuit, some of the challenges that he sees in the secondary market, the primary market, and we went really, really into some of the elements of actually growing a fan base, um, the challenges facing the live music industry, um, and, you know, pricing, a lot of, lot of stuff. I mean, it was like a really, really um, long and in-depth conversation, um, probably the longest one I've done here for the podcast. Um, I, I think it takes a few minutes to get started, but once we get into it, um, I think you're going to find there's a lot to learn from Eric Fuller. So I'm going to turn it over to me and Eric talking. I'd like to welcome Eric Fuller to the Business of Fun podcast. Eric, thank you for taking the time to talk with me today. Good to be here. Yeah, this is a, I think this is going to be something that's going to be really interesting for my audience um, because I think people are going to know you because of a lawsuit that you filed um, alleging that Ticketmaster used an exchange rate, a foreign exchange rate, to underpay brokers for tickets that were sold in Canada. Um, can you give everybody a little background about the state of this lawsuit and sort of you know, the assertions that you're making so that we can have a conversation based around that? Absolutely. So one of the things that happened is that I, I noticed um, in 2000. Uh, 16, that uh, I was getting paid for, for inventory that my point-of-sale system was providing to uh, Live Nation for their uh, Ticketmaster resale program uh, from Canadian shows in Canadian dollars, and the math didn't add up. <clears throat> and it turned out what was happening was that we would send an authority under the point-of-sale system that Live Nation could sell tickets uh, and and they would sell tickets. Let's say we we authorized it at a hundred dollars U.S. They would send us a check for a hundred dollars Canadian for those tickets uh, that they sold, minus whatever the sell fee was. I think it was eight percent in those days. So we'd get ninety two Canadian dollars, and and that didn't add up because a Canadian dollar was worth sixty five cents U.S. So we were short thirty five thirty five percent. Um, and it turned out after doing some research that Live Nation was doing that for approximately eight months. Uh, when I when I queried them about it, they said, "Well, we sent out an email that said we're going to sell things in Canadian dollars and we're going to pay you in Canadian dollars." And I said, "Gosh, that's great, but you still have to pay me in the correct number of Canadian dollars." And that's the basis of the lawsuit. Uh, Live Nation said, "Great, no problem," and they knew to the penny. We owe you this amount of money, and we'll just go ahead and send you a check. And I said, no, no, you've got to send everybody a check. I, I couldn't live with myself if I just took the money you owed me and I left everybody else hanging. So I, I'm afraid I'm going to have to insist that you make this right for all the brokers. And um, what they suggested I do is not physically possible, so we wound up uh, filing, a, filing a lawsuit, um, which is running to this day. Uh, it's complex because everything that's done now over the – Ticketmaster uh, protocols includes a lot of wraparound click-through uh, arbitration provisions and anti-collective action provisions, which may or may not be enforceable, and, and that's really the crux of where this litigation is circling right now uh, while we, we try to figure out if, in fact, Live Nation can skinny out and force everybody to bring their own individual action or if the whole thing can be set aside because it's such a colossal fraud. 
Yeah, and it, so, you know, at, at first blush, right, you know, I was like, well, how much money was really involved in this? But it, if it's a 35% difference between what you're expecting to get and what you are getting, um, that's a tremendous difference that adds up very quickly. So that, you know, so it, it does seem like that would quickly fall into the area of major fraud. Uh, yeah, well, um, the, the math isn't hard. I mean, if you look at the period from, we believe it's June of 2015 to September of 2016, for every ticket that was sold uh, in Canada provided by a broker uh, denominated U.S. dollars, uh, it's one-third of that amount. So that's a, that would be millions of dollars, not hundreds of thousands of dollars. Yeah, no, that, that's a lot. I mean, pretty quickly, like they say, like we say about the government, you know, a thousand dollars here, a thousand thousand dollars there. Pretty soon, you're talking some real money, and that, you know, and that is, um, you know, that is a big problem because, I mean, one of the challenges I've always had, or or it's been expressed to me as well, about what Ticketmaster and Live Nation are doing, is the way they kind of double dip on on these, you know, in the secondary market while also offering, you know, primary market services, and it seems that if you're, you know, willfully acting. And I guess probably fraud has a legal term that I'm not capable of speaking on. But in what would be perceived as a fraudulent manner, you know, you're also really just trying to hurt the people who are providing you with your livelihood and your revenue. Or am I am I misreading the the situation altogether? Um, I think it's something different, and I think it speaks to the culture of Live Nation. I think what happened is that Live Nation. Um, decided to price things in Canada because in Canadian dollars because it would be easier for them to make sales uh, to people whose currency was Canadian dollars. And I think that something in the way that they set their platform up was set up wrong. Now, this is just me guessing. I don't know. But it's the only thing that makes any sense. Um, and so they figured out at some point that they were uh, improperly charging the consumers. And so rather than take the loss for their own mistake, they tried to put it back to the brokers by sending these slippery emails uh, that said, we're going to sell in Canadian dollars and pay you in Canadian dollars and hope nobody was smart enough to figure out what was actually going on. Um, but we did figure out what was going on. And, and Live Nation's posture that, well, paying you in Canadian dollars uh, means we just pay you the number of Canadian dollars that your point of sale requested is, is, is preposterous. You know, if if I say to you, Dave, I'll sell you uh, a pair of tickets for a hundred dollars U.S., and you say to me, I'm going to sell them for uh, lollipops or you know, SpongeBob paraphernalia. I mean, I don't care what you sell them for; it doesn't matter. You owe me a hundred dollars. And if you want to sell them in uh, you know Russian rubles or in in euros or in Mexican pesos, I still don't care. You owe me a hundred dollars. If you want to pay me. With uh, Mexican pesos, you have to pay me in enough Mexican pesos to equate to $100. And I, I actually uh, wrote Michael Rapino directly and said, look, you know, it's a good thing Live Nation didn't have a Mexican CEO because instead of sending me a Canadian dollar for each, uh, for each U.S. dollar you owed me, they, under that theory they could have sent me one peso and I would have lost 95%. So, you know, it's just a silly argument that I think was put in place because whoever figured out they screwed up the mechanism of uh, collecting money in Canada didn't want to book the loss when they could just shove it off on brokers who maybe Live Nation thinks are too afraid to speak up. Uh, Live Nation does tend to have a bully attitude uh, about the way that they deal with everybody. You know, well, we're going to do what we're going to do and, you know, uh, defy you to do anything about it. Uh, and that, that only works until it doesn't. Yeah, I, I mean, and I don't think that what what you describe as a bullying attitude is necessarily something that anybody who's listening to this is going to um, not be familiar with, right? Because, I mean, I know a lot of people that listen to this podcast are outside of the United States. And one of the big fears and, and uh, concerns that they express to me all the time is they're worried about Ticketmaster coming into their market because of these t- of these these tactics and these things. And to me, it's completely feasible understanding, you know, maybe not even the culture at Live Nation and Ticketmaster, but just the corporate culture in America today, that if somebody made a mistake of that uh, magnitude, they would more likely than not 
think it was a more feasible thing to just pretend they made a mistake and uh, hope that nobody noticed it until they did and then just figure out how to cover up for it now. And, you know, so this is like, I mean, you know, knowing the culture of America business right now, this does make a lot of sense to me. Um, and I guess probably the question, because you brought up a lot of issues here for me, is what do you hope success from the lawsuit will look like besides people getting their money back? Because it, it seems like a, a bigger issue than just monetary uh, remuneration. It seems there's a, you know a lot of things that you're hoping will become uncovered or changed or altered due to the nature of this lawsuit. Well, I mean, the lawsuit, I mean, there's, there's two elements to the lawsuit. The lawsuit has two parts. Number one is the Canadian currency issue, which we discussed. And number two, we also discovered in the course of prepping to file the lawsuit that Live Nation um, was not refunding correctly tickets for shows which canceled. And that was an important thing for us because that involves not brokers, which nobody seems to care about as a sympathetic audience, but consumers. And so we figured out that, for example, Lionel Richie had a tour uh, that was scheduled to go, uh, I think it was last year. And uh, because of knee surgery, they had to postpone the tour six months, and many of the dates that were scheduled, they couldn't rebook it, so they were simply canceled. And we saw that the refunds that we received didn't match the, the payments we had made. Right. And so um, we filed the lawsuit and said that, you know, they're playing games with refunds, too and got really interesting letters from Live Nation's lawyer and telephone calls from Live Nation's outside counsel that said, our people swear they refund everything. This is outrageous. And we said, well, here's a spreadsheet of, you know, um, event by event by event. Here's a purchase that we made, and here's how much was refunded. And the, the numbers don't match. And about four weeks later, we, we got sort of a, a mealy mouth letter back that said, well, we... We searched 300 shows. I'm sure that's 300 shows that they looked at that I had bought things for. Um, and we found that in some instance, order processing fees weren't refunded. Uh, and it's because when we refund tickets, the, the, the ticket price is automatically refunded, but the order processing fee is refunded by hand. Now, if you're a company as large as Live Nation, running as many events as Live Nation, why would you not automate the entirety of the refund? Well, it's because sometimes you don't want to. And it's just one more instance where Live Nation is just hanging on to 2 or $3, because that's all it is, 2 or 3 or maybe $6 out of an order, just hoping nobody notices. And, and that opens up so many questions about the ethic and the underlying principles of, of that company that's being trusted to manage Everything from, you know, the verified fan system of distributing access to pre-sale codes to whether or not the seats that you think you're checking out to get are the seats you get to whether or not the price you think you said you were willing to pay when you clicked accept is the price that the calculation totals when you check out. And, and, and it's something that speaks to the heart of the way that that company runs, and it seems to be the way that that company runs is any dollar we can get is a good dollar, and any dollar we get we're going to keep because now it's ours, and we don't care who we steamroller. And, and, and there is a reason, in my opinion, that Live Nation may possibly be, and when I say Live Nation in this instance, I mean their Ticketmaster subsidiary, Live Nation may really be one of the most despised companies in the history of the United States, it's staggering. And if you search popular culture and memes, you see them everywhere from The Simpsons talking about the, the most evil criminals inhabiting Cuba and, and the one that gets singled out to get slapped in the face is the guy that invented the Live Nation service fee to David Letterman um, speaking out on, I think, the Mark Twain Comedy Awards. Uh, you know, across the board, I mean, there, there's hundreds of instances when, when Ticketmaster is is just abraded for their, their horrible, horrible attitude toward the consumers that are powering all, uh, all of their revenue. And, and, and it's, it's really intrinsic in their DNA to, to, to manipulate and, and, and I almost want to say grift um, to get money. I mean, even Jared Smith uh, is recently quoted in the press as, as saying that 98% of shows uh, don't sell out, and so the reason that there's no... Um, transparency as to the availability of tickets is that it would be harder to sell tickets if essentially people 
knew they were still available as opposed to this fake scarcity, the fake sellouts. Uh, these are me adding my words to you know the underlying theme of, of what uh, Jared Smith was saying about why they, they're not transparent. You know, basically, they're saying, well, it's because we're not selling out the show, so why would we say that? But, but the, the simple extension of that is, if people knew that the shows weren't selling out, they wouldn't be paying your, your ridiculous overpriced prices. They'd be waiting for prices to come down. And I, and I would even, like an assertion that I would make based on, you know, the, this quote that you gave of 98% of shows not selling out, um, and I would marry it with um, some in some documents that I've, I've seen in the past that said, like, yeah, I think it was either 47 or percent of tickets were not sold ever or 47 percent of tickets were um were were sold you know it was like some absurd that half the tickets were never ever you know never sold and used is that one of the big challenges and one of the the reasons it seems that live nation and Ticketmaster act the way they do too is because they haven't solved the challenge of generating demand which, like, when you talk about being having an abusive relationship towards the customer or the broker, um, seems like cutting off your nose to spite your face. Because in a lot of re- a lot of ways, the consumers, you know, obviously, if you don't have a customer, you don't have anything. But if you don't have the brokers, you also don't have anybody working to help you generate demand. And as much as the brokers aren't, like you said, a sympathetic audience or a sympathetic uh, group of people, the, the the fact is that they're serving a lot of people. There's a lot of small, you know, medium-sized businesses that are built off of serving customers. And to do stuff like this is really, it's arrogant, number one, but then it's also just, it's stupid. I mean, and you know, those are, those are my words, they're stupid, because you can't just, you know, for lack of a better term, shit on your customers over and over and over again and expect them to continue to stay. And I think we're seeing that play out now, you know, not just with Ticketmaster, but just tickets in general, where people are just staying away. Well, I, I think that, I, I mean, there's a lot to unpack in there, and, and I'm going to try to reach back to a couple of those things that might take me a minute. First, let's talk about what I think is, is the jump the shark moment, um, and, and that would be the Taylor Swift tour. So I, I published on the PR Newswire about three months before Taylor Swift tickets went on sale. Uh, and for those of you listening to the podcast, here's what happened. Early on uh, uh, in the summer of last year, there was uh, an announcement that Taylor Swift was going to go on tour and uh, that they were going to create something called Taylor Swift Ticketing, uh, which was a joint venture between Taylor Swift's people uh, and between the Ticketmaster. And in order to make sure that it was fair and the true fans could get access to the tickets, that there was going to be this period of time running up to when tickets went on sale in, in November that the true fans could go on to uh, Ticketmaster and they could uh, boost their ability to have priority by tweeting uh, and liking certain of, of the social media posts that Taylor made, by buying her merchandise, by uh, doing a whole number of things, and, and that this would be a dynamic boost. In other words, that, that the more you boosted yourself didn't guarantee you stayed in that position because somebody could not boost themselves and get in front of you. And, and I published something nationwide. It cost me a lot of money. And I said, look, don't fall for this. Because first of all, what they're not telling you is how many shows she's going to play in every market. But uh, history tells us she's going to have at least two nights, maybe three nights in these stadiums in every town, which is 200,000, 300,000 tickets. The second thing they're not telling you is what's the price going to be. So I, I have kids, um, and, and I raised my kids to go to shows. And the last thing I would have wanted is if my daughter was at, at that time uh, at Taylor Swift age, to have her spend three or four months as Taylor's uh, uh, social media stooge and, and ask me to buy 12 copies of her album, two snake rings, 14 sweatshirts, and seven hats, only to find out on the day of sale that, I don't know, this tickets should be $800. And so I, I basically said, wait and see, because there are going to be plenty of tickets on the market, and you're not going to need to do any of this. Well, sure enough, you know, the day after uh, the on sale, all of a sudden, or a week later, here comes, you know, day two, day three in stadiums. And what do you know? The availability of tickets was better for people that did nothing but log in when they added the next show than it was for these poor kids that spent all that money and worked all that hard doing the social media. And not only that, it wasn't too long after that that it was obvious that none of these shows sold out 
uh, and that there was 10, 20, 30,000 seats available for some shows, every show, and the dynamic pricing reversed. And so the $800 tickets became $500 tickets, and the $500 tickets became $250 tickets. And I think, you know, I mean, I watched these shows because I was fascinated. Right down to the day of show, they didn't sell out. Uh, where Live Nation even shut down the uh, the ability to to resell tickets on Live Nation's resale market if you were holding tickets because they wanted to force people to go to uh, the, the primary distribution source to try and sell some more of the tickets that were going to burn. Um, and, and that, I think, was really the moment. Um, I, I want to call it the Napster moment. You know, there was a time, I'm old enough that that I went from records to CDs, and somewhere I've got uh, you know thousands of CDs stacked up because I love music. Um, but then nobody bought CDs anymore, and nobody bought CDs anymore because they weren't seven dollars; they were sixteen dollars, and they didn't have twelve good songs; they had one. And people said, you know, we don't care. And Apple came out and said, for ninety-nine cents, you can buy that one song, and that was the end of recorded music as any sort of a revenue stream. So the last revenue stream that exists in, in music has been live music. And live music has always been what I like to call the collective cathartic experience. You go down with uh, uh, to see a, a, an event that you want to see. And, and I'm going to use music rather than sports just because I'm more familiar for the minute. And, and you go down to see you know, the band you want to see, and everybody that's there wants to see that band. And you're in a common mindset, and, and there's just the, the spirit of community and excitement and engagement that goes around being there when the lights go down and the sound comes up and the familiarity of the show and, and, and the excitement of being part of it. And it's just an enormously positive experience. Well, what do we have going on now? We have Live Nation running an in-game, you know, recognizing that the secondary market grew to maybe $8 billion in the United States, and they think that by divine right that should be their money. How are they going to get it? Well, they've raised all the prices, not recognizing that the fact that there were premium prices in the secondary market for maybe you know 12% of the tickets being sold, not 100%. They've raised the number of seats or places available, so people that should be playing in small rooms are playing in medium rooms, people that should be playing in medium rooms are playing in large rooms, people that should be playing in large rooms are playing in stadiums, and, and adding you know two nights or three nights. And what are you getting? You're getting people that are saying, it's too expensive, I'm not going to go, or instead of going to six things, I'm going to go to one. You've got people that are going, and, they're, and you know, you're seeing bands like, I don't know, Pitbull, 30 Seconds to Mars, My Bloody Valentine, um, uh, G-Easy, that are playing to you know, 75% empty uh, rooms. Now, I don't know about your audience, but if I paid a lot of money... Uh, I mean, even Jay-Z and Beyonce are moving people down from the upper tier to the lower tier because they're not selling. You know, if I paid a lot of money to go have the excitement of a show and I'm sitting in a room that there's 17 seats on either side of me, I'm going to think, I don't ever want to do this again. Um, And and frankly, I I wrote Michael Rapino and I said, if you want to know why, you know, this is why nobody cares when Rascal Flatts comes to town for the 17th time. You know, if you come to town so many times that nobody cares to go see you, and now when you're coming back, you've tripled the price, you're in a, you know, a 4X size room, and there's only 11 other people there, nobody's going again. And, and so whatever it is you guys are doing right now, trying to melt this market to kill the secondary market, you're killing the live market, because you're going to train, train two things. One, you're going you're gonna to ruin what Fred Rosen did. Fred Rosen's the genius that made Ticketmaster what it is, that, that, that did two things. One, set up the whole mechanism where they locked down all the venues by, by saying, rather than you paying us a quarter to issue tickets for you, we'll pay you 25 or 40% of the service fee. But two, making sure that you understood that when tickets went on sale at 10 a.m., you better be on there at 10 a.m. because at 10.02, there's no tickets left, and you missed it. And, and with, within that confine, the brokers developed, and the brokers developed as a form of arbitrage. And if you think about the form of arbitrage, it's not the one that we're typically talking about where somebody says, I'm going to buy this ticket for 100 and sell it for 130, although that happens. It's also time arbitrage because I might not know that seven months from now I'm going to be in New York City. But when I happen to be in New York City, if it turns out Billy Joel's playing the garden, I might want to see that. 
I didn't know seven months ago, you know, in January of the prior year when those tickets went on sale to buy them because I had no idea I'd be in New York. And, and you know, the secondary market sort of acts as a holding mechanism to say, well, here's some holdback inventory for people that didn't know they were going to be here that can now get in. And for people that thought they were going to be here to get out from under their tickets. And, you know, maybe, you know, maybe you're... Uh, your your best friend was country western, but but you don't like that person anymore, and now you're dating a girl that likes EDM music. Well, you can go see that show. So so all of those things are part of what the secondary market was doing before we got to this this massive harvesting scalping problem that we're dealing with. Well, um, that, I mean that but the, that, that point know, is um, you know is really really a good one too because you know I know I told you offline before we got started you know my background is heavily in the secondary market and and that's in, in New York specifically um, but I you know my clients were global but that was our big thing was right we worked with a lot of the theaters to you know take on risk also because. They couldn't. People couldn't necessarily plan how far in advance they were coming to New York. So a lot of these Broadway shows, without the influence of brokers taking risk and you know providing the service to people who may be coming at the last minute or changing their plans, it would just would Broadway wouldn't exist in the way it did. You know, and and that's despite any like haranguing and browbeating that producers want to make about the secondary market is the fact that like many of these longest running shows wouldn't have made it without the brokers. I mean, it, you know, it's to try to undercut them at all and say there's no place for them. I think it's disingenuous, number one, but it's also disillusioned. Well, and it also, it also ignores the reality of, look, the, the, the ticket marketplace is fast and deep. And everybody's always focused on the very, very, very few super high-profile, extra-hot shows. And, and, you know, that's interesting, but it's not the reality of the bulk of the market. I mean, I remember buying Mac Miller tickets when Mac Miller was playing in high school gymnasiums. And the tickets were like 10 bucks, And they weren't really selling. And then he started to get popular. But, you know, I bought a bunch of those tickets. And when he got to popular, the $10 tickets were $40. You know, but then I bought him when they put him in little old theaters, and he wasn't selling them out. And, you know, the, the tickets were now $15. And so there's a lot of acts that come up that they only got attention because people that are in the business of speculatively buying tickets thought, well, this looks like it could trend, or it looks like they're starting to get some, some attention in, in media or on radio. And so we're going to buy some of this inventory and see what happens. And, and that support maybe emboldened the tour to keep moving. Um, if you price everything to get the last dollar out of every ticket, you're going to lose the pipeline of taking people out of the gymnasiums and into the small theaters. Um, I mean, you just, saw, you just saw it in Salt Lake City. You saw Greta Van Fleet, which is a great young little band with the Led Zeppelin vibe that was just crushing you know, 800-seat rooms, and they put them in, I, I think, a 5,000-seat place. And, you know, the tickets are, 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 they sold out because all the brokers went and bought them, but they've got no no margin at all on the secondary market. You can buy them at retail price. And, and by the way, here's something that, that nobody outside the industry understands. I'd say 35 to 40% of all the tickets that brokers buy can be bought for underface value on the secondary market sites, because a lot of stuff that brokers buy, there's no margin left. And, and so to get out from under it, you can, you know, <laughs> you can buy Robert Plant tickets for $6 at um, Arthur Ashe Stadium in New York. Yeah. You, you could buy Pitbull tickets for $10. You know, I mean, you, you, there's, there, there, there's actual risk for the people that are laying capital down to buy tickets for a show in the future. Um, where that show, ha- that ticket has zero value once the show starts. It's done. So, so it cuts both ways. But, but the really odd thing that's going well, on. Let is, me let me jump in uh, here too because when you talk about yeah. the, the tickets being available on the secondary sites for underface value, it's um, that's true, right? And it, it's probably a greater number of tickets than you you even said, right? I, I think it's largely over 50% a lot of times, you know, if you take the aggregate of all the shows. But the one thing you're doing when you talk about conditioning customers too, is that you're conditioning customers that everything is going to be either too expensive for me to buy, or that I should wait till the last minute. And 
some so something happens here, right? It's like if you don't sell tickets early, then you're you're really holding on tight, hoping that you're going to get revenue, right? And early money um, is better than late money every time, right? Because there's so much more you can do with cash on hand. But the second part of it, which is a real challenge of demand generation and customer creation and customer keeping, is the fact that if you have trained your your audience to wait until the last minute to buy something under the idea that maybe they'll get a deal or they don't want to have to pay any more than, than necessary, you've trained them to wait till the last minute and what happens is a lot of times maybe the decision becomes instead of like, I really want to go see Robert Palmer, is like, I can care less about seeing Robert Palmer. I'm going to go to the bar for happy hour or I'm going to go to dinner or I'm going to do something else. So you're really, you know, you're cutting yourself both ways. And I think this is driving well, it, a lot it, of the, it, inner, the challenges, at least to me. It, it's more than that, Dave. I mean, it's really more than that. I mean, and I was starting to talk about the genius of uh, Fred Rosen, so let me finish it. Yeah. So, so the genius of Fred Rosen was... He got everybody to believe that you buy those tickets at 10 a.m. when I go on sale or you're going to get locked out. And so there was a lot of hype, right? Whatever it is, you know, I don't care if it's Elton John or, or you know, Dodgers tickets. I mean, they go on sale at this time. You've got to buy them or you miss out. Well, what Live Nation and, and their, you know, vaunted uh, slow ticketing plan is, is we're going to dynamically price. And we're going to adjust prices as high as we can. If, you know, you see it right now with Lady Gaga. Lady Gaga, they had an on sale for Vegas. Uh, code on sale yesterday, today, um, the ticket prices are even higher because it did well. All right, but, but in a minute, you know, those ticket prices aren't going to hold because there's, I think, only so many times that people want to pay $550 to see her jazz show, you know, on a Tuesday night in Vegas or whatever night they add shows to. All right, and then they're going to start dynamically pricing the shows down. And, and I come out of the world, I, I had a big, a big interest in the travel industry years ago. And I know dynamic pricing works in airline industry, but in airline industry, you start with low prices and you move out a bunch of your inventory and the last tickets that are left go for high prices because you can hold out on those. You've sold almost everything. The, the Live Nation model seems to be, let's get as much money as we can up front for tickets and then move the prices down as we get closer to the event. And that only works one time, which is what we're watching. This is the experiment we're watching right now. Once people catch on that that's the path and that when it's two days or three days before the show, those promoters uh, and Live Nation are going to be looking at all those, those ticket revenues and fees that are just free marginal money for us if we get them sold no matter what price we sell them for, they're going to move those prices down and they're going to sell them. And at that point, your model isn't travel, your model isn't ticket, your model is department store always on sale. And you tell me how well department store always on sale works. Go look at any mall where there used to be a Sears or a J.C. Penney's or uh, a, a Montgomery Wards or, you know, a Kohl's. I mean, you could just run down the list of companies that don't exist anymore. Because once people catch on never to pay retail at all, you never have any margin. None. Discounts and, destroy and brands. That's, that's something you I've said brands. for years. Yes, it destroys. And, and to your point, your point, which is spot on accurate. If you think that today is the only day you can buy tickets to see Billy Joel five months from now at the Garden, you're going to spend that five months thinking about that night, planning. You know, I, I'll use Barbara Streisand as an example because it's the most extreme. I remember Barbara Streisand hadn't toured forever, and she came out, and her tickets were like $1,000 each. But, man, the people that loved her wanted to see her. It didn't matter what it cost. And they spent half a year planning, you know, the ladies planning their outfit, the hairstyle, the nails, the, the limousine, the restaurant to eat at before. This was going to be an event, and they looked for it. But, but when it's just what's on game time today that we can go see five minutes from now if we hurry, you, you're going to see, you know, empty stadiums, empty arenas. And by the way, who wants to go to that? You know, it's Yogi Berra, right? Nobody, that, <laughs> that, that place, nobody goes there anymore. <laughs> I, think, I mean, these are, the point? these are all points that I, you know, I hit. And then all the, constantly because I'm going, you know, sort of that mystique is gets removed from the experience, right? Like I, I wrote, uh, I put a post of a blog post on my website today as we're talking um, about just like, about the how you can turn your experience from ordinary to extraordinary because that's a lot of what's missing, right? It's like we, they, as much as we train the consumers, everybody involved feels like sometimes has lost that sense of magic about the about the experience. Like I'm a, big, a huge Pearl Jam fan, and they do a fantastic job of maintaining their ba brand integrity and like 
only doing enough shows and like only do playing in a way and creating in a manner that they maintain like a sense of like oh my god mystery and excitement about coming to see them play and that's like so missing like you used uh, Rascal Flats um, which is a great example like uh, Kenny Chesney who goes around every year right uh, if you're not careful pretty soon you burn your audience out and you and there's no magic there's no mystery and so then really what are you going for right like there you have to you know, you do have to view this, selling this as like a little bit of a mystery, as a little bit of like excitement, a little bit of mystique and aura and build it up a little bit, you know, to a peak experience, which I think a lot of these practices tear that away, right? Because there's not there's no value added in, in the course of buying the ticket or, or going to the show or doing anything. It's, you know, and it's a missed opportunity from, from my point of view. Well, and, and so I agree with you entirely. And, and I also think that this is really important. I mean, you can see it in Major League Baseball this year. There was a big push in the last year by sports teams to take away the seasons from brokers, brokers who managed those seasons and paid for them and, and you know, discounted the seats to put people in them in the hopes that there'd be playoff tickets that would be profitable at the other end. And a lot of those tickets were taken away. And now you see a big decline in attendance in, 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 at Major League Baseball. So, I don't know, is it fun to go see a baseball game when, you know, two-thirds of the stadium's not there? Or do you leave after the fourth inning and you've had your hot dog because you just don't care? Let's take I mean, it there's even... No, there's no pulse. Let's go even one step further because that's a great point because I know that the model for a lot of the sports organizations is if we win, they'll come, right? And I live in D.C. where the Nationals have had the best, one of the better teams in baseball for the last as long as I've lived here, so almost seven years, right? Exciting young players, um, always successful. Yet that stadium sits three-quarters full on most nights, right? And then to compound the fact that, like, nobody wants to go there because there's nobody there, right? Which, you know, if, that, if, that, if you buy that premise, which, you know, I think is relatively true. Then if you overcharge on, on all the experiential aspects of it, and then the customer service treats you like crap when you're there, you know, why would you go? And and, and, the, and I know from being working on the secondary side, the numbers for Major League Baseball for a broker to invest in them, they don't work in most cases unless there is playoff baseball. So, but you need a broker to help you move seats. I mean, it's it's just like you, your inside sales room is inefficient at moving seats. The bro- you need the brokers absolutely because they have digital t- capabilities. They have typically um, a lot of guys have long-term relationships that they've been developing for 10, 15, 20 years. You know, so they have a wider market. You know, there's all these reasons that it's absolutely stupid to cut off uh, secondary market sales of Major League Baseball. But, uh, you know, I think I went down a, uh, on a tangent there. Well, no, no, no. I mean, your point is valid. The point is even simpler than that. And the point is that the secondary market spends an awful lot of money, either at the market level, the StubHub, Vivid, you know, SeatGeek level in, in direct advertising, or at the broker-by-broker broker, uh, level, to develop interest in particular events. So you've got an outside free sales force serving the performer or the team or the event, all right? And if you let Live Nation monopolize distribution uh, and pricing in such a way that there's no incentive for any of those organizations to exist anymore, then the only outlet becomes Live Nation, which is demonstrably untrustworthy, and the artists and the teams and the venues should be cautious. Um, but beyond that, and, and, and not to get back to my favorite whipping boy in this whole thing, if you look at the economic model, it's ludicrous. I mean, if you look at the 2017... Forbes list of the highest paid performers. Um, number eight on the list was Bruce Springsteen, who made $75 million. Number nine was Adele, who made, I think, $69 million. That year, Michael Rapino, who runs a company that sells these tickets, made $70.5 million. Now, in, in, in a company that has made no money for its shareholders, on a you know earnings basis, lost money. Went up, but on an earnings basis, there's there's how do you seas of re- there's seas of red ink on those quarterly reports. <laughs> it's like as yeah, far as you can red. see, I mean, it's red, right? And, and that's and that's red ink after running every possible manipulation you can run. 
you know, I'd be fascinated to know what it looked like if somebody did a Hollywood audit on all those trust accounts that they're holding for the for the artists who you know tickets have been sold for, but the you know the events haven't taken place. You know, I remember when Art Buckwald filed that suit against, I think, Paramount a million years ago. And what do you know? Paramount owed him, you know, millions and millions of dollars because of shady accounting practice. Um, You know, a company that will take a dollar here and a dollar there and a dollar here and a dollar there, uh, that doesn't speak well to their underlying ethic. When they take 35 or 45 percent of the ticket price in a service fee in a time when technology works like it works, I can't even fathom how they continue to exist other than they have a lockup for the moment on um, venues and they can block a touring route by not making their venues available. But my God, Phil Anschutz has enough money uh, and AEG is big enough that if they wanted to, they could ride around a uh, ride, ride around uh, live nation in a second. Yeah. You know, I mean, and, and I'll tell you, I was in San Francisco uh, this week and I needed a truck. There's a company that's called Getaround that, that is a little, a little app, and it's, it's a peer-to-peer app. And you go on Getaround for $8 an hour. I could rent a Ford 250 with a giant bed. I needed it for two hours to move a sofa to Costco. So I paid $16 to get this truck on this app, and Getaround arranged that for me. In other words, I booked the truck. They told me where it would be located. When I got to the truck where it was parked, they sent an unlock code. When I returned the truck, they set a lock code, and they did all of that for a service fee of a dollar, one dollar. Technology costs nothing. The idea that somebody should get, I don't know, $180 to sell an $800 Drake ticket that, you know, is never going to sell for $800 again is just insanity. Somebody could do that for five bucks. And, and I've long advocated for the Little Caesars model of, of, of ticket selling, Little Caesars, five dollars, pizza, pizza. I think tickets could be sold for a $5 fee and you could make $4 profit on it. So, you know, this, this is, this is, like I said, in game, it's in game. And I, I see this being the last giant money grab before, um, technology and, and consumer pushback is going to blow apart the models that we have presently running for the primary distribution of tickets. There, there's no reason for it. And, and there's particularly no reason for it to be locked in the hands of people that are so, disinterested in the experience of the consumer and, and avaricious in the way that they're trying to skin absolutely every player in the marketplace. Yeah. And, and I've said that publicly, and I'm presently writing a book to explain that. And I invite any of your, uh, any, anybody that's listening that, that knows any horror stories uh, uh, to, to contact me, eric.fuller, E-R-I-C dot F-U-L-L-E-R at Yoseats, Y-O-S-E-A-T-S dot com. And let me know, because I want to get this right. I mean, I think this is a horror story. Yeah. And it's really just the destruction of American culture for, uh, uh, for greed, really for greed. I mean, so. you know, for, for me, it's like one of those situations where everything I come back to is that if we don't have a customer, we don't have anything. And, you know, kind of the premise of this whole podcast is that we talk a lot about the marketing and selling of experiences. And, you know, so like my, my m- mantra on this thing is always like if it's stupid or if it hurts your ability to uh, grow and keep a customer, then, you know, you got to ask yourself why it's happening. Right. And in the case of what Ticketmaster or and Live Nation are doing, right, the only bit, you know, everything they're doing, it's not customer friendly. Right. Because. I mean, they, maybe they came at, even come at it with good intentions. I'm willing to give them that, right? But the thing is, is like it, it's abusive to people, right? People don't understand it, um, and it really does. Like you said, it hurts the ability to sell tickets to shows, right? And that's right. not coming at it from like a primary or a secondary side. It's just coming from it from a fact that like there's so much competition for people's money that every little step you take in putting a barrier between them. And experiencing something they want to experience means that you're going, you're destroying the trust between you and the consumer. And we all can recognize that there's more options for our attention and our money than ever before. So if you go somewhere else, like let's say um, if you go to a show at the Capital One Arena in D.C., again, because I live here, and, and you're turned off by that one experience – there may be not a good reason for you to come back because you could be like so turned off by the whole experience that you go, there's no need for me to fight the lines. There's no need for me to fight the challenges of the Metro. There's all these reasons. I'll go to dinner. I'll watch it on TV. 
I'll go on vacation. I'll do something else. And you're fighting a constant battle that. And so like trying to squeeze, like you said, every penny is playing the finite game, right? Which means that there has to be a winner and loser. When I advocate that there's an infinite game. And if you develop customers and think about the fourth or fifth sale first, then you're going to win over the long term because you can only play quarterly capitalism so long before you burn out all of your markets. I mean, and that's what like, you know, the case, what interests me about the case and kind of interests me about the conversation we've had. Well, and, and, and Dave, I think you're spot on. I mean, I'm, obviously this is a, a, an area where you've given it a lot of thought and, and look, marketing is not hard, right? I mean, you create demand by providing value and, and you create relationships by building trust. I love Costco. You know, I, I love Costco. I mean, I've been, I, I went to Price Club when you know, the first one was in the neighborhood where I live. And I've been shopping ever since. And it's not because I'm cheap. It's because I don't, you know, you can go into Costco now, I can buy a $3,000 bottle of 25-year-old scotch. I mean, I go in there because their team carefully curates what they present. They very carefully look at what, what the quality is. They won't let anything in there that isn't of their standard of quality. And the pricing's always fair. It's an 11% margin. And so I don't even think about it. If I see something that I like, I just put it in the cart and buy it. That's exactly right. right. Because I know it's fair. <laughs> That's exactly right. Yeah. With, it's just, you know, and, and so I spend more money at Costco every year than I spend any other place uh, because I don't even think about it. I just start there. And if they don't have it, then I go somewhere else. Okay. And what we've got going on in the ticketing market right now, in the primary ticketing market, is a war to get as many dollars as we can up front out of everybody, and the inevitable, predictable result of anybody that's ever studied economics, supply and demand, is that the number of transactions you're going to have with your customers is going to go down, and the more you teach people not to go, the less they're going to go. So I'm a guy that goes to 75 things a year. I love going to live events. I don't like staying home. And, you know, recently... I'm not going to some of these events because, you know, I've been to see Bruno Mars uh, six times in the last three years because the girl I go out with loves Bruno Mars. But I don't want to pay $295 to go see him doing an, what's now an hour and 25-minute show. You know, it was worth 130 or 150 It's not worth 295 Right. Right? Yeah. You know, and, and if that's me with no real budgetary constraints – and, you know, admittedly insane in terms of the amount of live entertainment I consume, what's somebody going to be thinking about, you know, that's, that's you know, that the money is actually meaningful to? You know, that's a $1,000 night if four of you go uh, just to get in the door. Right. $1,200. Well, you say that. Right? You, you bring you a really great point here, and I don't mean to step on you either, but this is the same situation with, like, me, me my wife and I, right? Like, it's like, it's not necessarily the money. It, it Exactly. It's the value we receive, and we're like, well, it's just not worth it, right? It's it's always about value. I mean, because yeah. the, the money, the money we can, we have the money. It's but it's you know, it's like the value for the time and the money that we're giving that's just not there in so many cases. If I can buy two tickets to fly to Europe for the same amount of money that I have to pay to see Bruno Mars play. I don't have to think very long about that. I'm going to Europe, right? I mean, That's it's exactly just, it's, right. It's disconnected. It's yeah. disconnected from reality, and so, so. But there's a whole other thing we're not talking about, and and I want to. I know we're going to run out of time, so I want to get this really quickly in here. And that is, if you really look at at least in live music, still the massive draws are are aging, right? I mean, there isn't a a really strong core of thirty to forty year old people that are going to be, you know, the McCartneys and the Stones of this era where they're still out there in 30 years pulling big crowds, right? And, and, and the really younger people, you know, they're, they're, they come up and they go on, right? And if you don't ingrain in, in consumers that the fun of going to a smaller or a mid-sized show and watching a Greta Van Fleet mature into something, um, you don't ever build the pipeline of new acts. Right. So, so what's your supply in five years? If, you, if this turns into a special event, you know, people are going to go twice a year. They're going to see the biggest star in the world. They don't care what they have to pay to get in there. Live Nation gets all the money. And they don't see anything else. What supports the craft? Is it all going to be just push-a-button DJs and everybody has to go see the Chainsmokers? 
hope not. That's a, that's a that's a really great point. That's I mean, I, as you said it, I thought I saw the Foo Fighters on their first tour at a club that held a thousand people in Fort Lauderdale, and I remember I grew up, you know, with Pearl Jam going to like small clubs to like arenas, you know, in the big stadiums, and, and it's right, and it's true. Mm-hmm. It's like it's it's a it's a narrative as much as anything else, right? And like you need, you know, because I would be lying, and I'm sure you would agree with me to not, to not recognize. The, role that nostalgia plays and the, the story, the, the cultivation and development over time of these relationships that you have with these artists. So if you're mm-hmm. not building and growing and cultivating an audience, which I know part of that relies on the artists as well, then what do you have? There's an end point. There is a finite end date when Neil Young will, will die one day, right? Bob Dylan will die. Yeah. Mick Jagger will die, yeah. right? And then what's right. who's beneath them? You have maybe three or yep. four acts, right? You have probably the Foo Fighters. You probably you have Pearl Jam, and I would struggle to list the ne- you know the next few bands that fill that role that gap mm-hmm. because they just aren't there. And 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 that speaks to the challenge of long term, you know, marketing and you know demand generation for one. But it also is just like it's a negligence of the place that you're taking money from. Right. And I think that's one of the big challenges. I know that I probably know, you know, maybe focus more on sports than you, you, you do typically. But that's the problem with sports now is that, you know, why you're seeing three quarters of the stadium sitting empty is because people aren't cultivating the next generation. It's let me do everything I can today to suck at the teat of the TV money, which is great. I, you know, I'm the first one to tell you, make all the money you can with it. You know, I'm never going to say don't make the money. But the thing is, is like you can't make the money and just like hope that everything's going to be all right down the road. Because if you don't spend time on things today, then we know all know that like pushing things off in the future means every action you take is going to be more expensive and less likely to be successful. And that's just what like most of what I see in tickets happens now. Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting you raise the Foo Fighters. I mean, I, I love the Foo Fighters. They're a terrific band. And in October, they're doing Cal Jam. And, you know, Cal Jam, they brought it back. It's, a, it's out in, a, you know, it's a little festival in San Bernardino, Glen Helen Regional Park. And it's $99. So for $99, you get, I don't know, 40 bands, uh, including the Foo Fighters. And, and that's going to fill up with people that just want to go have a good time. I went to the first one last year. Um, I recommend anybody that goes take head, uh, earphones because it's the loudest thing I've ever been to in my life. Uh, but... You know, the food wasn't overpriced, the beers weren't overpriced, everybody was happy, and you didn't feel abused. And, and once you introduce this feeling of abused into the population of your, of your consumers, you run them off. And they're very hard to get back when you break those habits. So I'm not, I'm not angry that, that Live Nation figured out how to make money. I think people should make money. But there's a difference between being able to make money and being abusive in how you make money. And ultimately, ultimately, competition comes into play, and companies that are abusive in the way they make money get supplanted by companies that are not. And, and so I, I, I feel like I'm on a crusade. I don't want to be on a crusade. But every time I poke the beast that's Live Nation, I just find another way that they're just, they're just helping themselves to something that they have no business helping themselves to uh, in, in a way that's just, just not transparent, that's, that's, that's not honest. And, and so I finally went Howard Beale, and I said, you know, I've I, I had enough. You know, I, I'm mad as hell. I'm not going to take it anymore. So, you know, I sued him. Um, this is the second time I've sued him. I, I, um, you know, I'm writing a book. I'm, I'm being vocal. You know, I'm bringing daylight to an area that, you know, they keep running around saying, oh, no, no, we're doing all this to protect from bots and scalpers. And I keep saying, you're the biggest scalper on the planet. You own Get Me In. You own SeatWave. You own Ticketmaster Resale, you know, tickets now with an inventory, whatever you want to call it. You change the name all the time. You, you have your, your, your verified fan thing, which I call is verified scam, which is just give us your email information and we'll randomly send some people out a code, which is all that they do, 
Um, and then, you know, we'll charge you a super high price if you even get through. But guess what? All you people that got a code to get in, most of you can't buy a ticket. But what do you know? There's plenty of tickets available on our, on our resale platforms the second that sale opens. Well, how does that happen? I don't know. I'm guessing that there's some direct deals between artists and promoters to go straight to the secondary market. Uh, I, I'm guessing that, that it's very tempting if you're a company that's willing to keep 2 or $3 of refund money, that it's even more tempting to, to take a ticket that you're selling for $150 at retail and just instantly sell it at 230 on the resale market and double dip the fees. I don't know how you resist that temptation. And, and I, I think that when you just over overplay that hand, ultimately the truth starts to leach back out. And, and I wanted to talk about this other thing before we, we run out of time, because I want to call out two artists that I think did brilliant things in the last two years to figure out a way to, to straddle their right to earn good money and the pressure of the secondary market, either direct selling tickets into the secondary market or that the secondary market will, will scoop up all the tickets that, that are available and mark them up, taking the margin away from the artist. So I want to look at what Kid Rock did, and I want to look at what Garth Brooks did. Garth Brooks said, all our tickets are effectively $75. We're going to sell as many shows as we can sell till we kill all the demand in the town. And, you know, good for him. He played two shows a day. Oh, my God, right? He worked four hours, right? But yeah. he played two shows a day, and in some cities he played, I don't know, 10, 12 shows. And, and everybody got a good experience because they went into a, an arena, not a stadium. A stadium, I think, is just live radio, personally. They went into an arena, they saw him, they paid, you know, I don't know, $100 all in, they had a great time, they went home, and it, you know, he hadn't been there in 11 years, and, you know, it couldn't be more happy consumers. Kid Rock said, I'm going to do an, an amphitheater tour, I'm going to hold back the 3,000-ish best seats, put them straight on the secondary market, get as much money as I can for them, and everything else is 20 bucks, no service fee if you buy no Walmart, and yeah. we'll make it up on beer, and I'm sure he did. Right? I, I probably agree uh, wholeheartedly, and I'll highlight before we go one more time because it's an example I use all the time, which is very similar to some combination of all of those things. And it's, it's Pearl Jam who uses their fan club to sell half, probably half the house before a ticket goes on sale so that they make sure that like the best fans get the access to the best tickets. All you do is you get you spend $40 a year on the fan club membership, but in that you get access to tickets and you get a free t-shirt which right like at a concert it's going to cost you forty dollars anyway um they give you a newsletter they give you a download to a bootleg they give you all kinds of stuff for that and they control their tickets so that you never see pearl jam tickets on the secondary market in most cases right um because they spent the time building the infrastructure and cultivating an audience um you know kid rock again let me let me open the, some of the best seats up to the people who are willing to pay, and we'll take we'll you know we'll give people that opportunity, right? Or Garth Brooks, beating demand. There is any number of ways to do it, right? And you know, there's no right or wrong necessarily right or wrong way. It's all within how you know what makes you feel comfortable. But I think the one thing that we can both agree on, and I think it's you know you've you've highlighted it a lot here. I know I highlight it regularly. Is that you have to consider your customers. And you can't think of your customer as a renewable resource because as the more time you spend neglectful, neglecting them and treating them disdainfully, the quicker they are, it is for them to turn you off. And once they turn you off, they're unlikely to come back. And I think that that's, you know, your lawsuit against Ticket Ticketmaster and Live Nation, the one you did previously against Score Big, I think it does highlight that as much as it's like about the primary versus the secondary – to me, it really strikes a chord about being, you know, there to serve the customer and there to serve the fan. And I think that I hope that more people spend a lot more time focusing on what's right for the consumer and what's right for the fan. Because if you do what's right for them, there's, uh, God willing, there should be money there for people to make. Well, and, and here is the thing that I think, Dave, as we wrap this up, I think that this market has become so visible and so large that there is absolutely certainly going to be a new player or players that will crack that monopoly 
um, and that will bring common sense to the way that you, you market. And I think the place that pressure needs to be put is not necessarily on Live Nation because they're just going to do what they're going to do, but on the, the promoters and on the artists and on the teams. Because the fans have a lot of power, and if they say to you know Drake or to Jay-Z or to Paul McCartney or whomever, I don't mind paying you $200 to see your show, but why are you letting... Live Nation charged me another hundred to send me a ticket that cost them seven cents to send electronically. That's right. Yeah. That's making me angry. And and I want to I want to say something. David Marcus did a podcast on Freakonomics. Everybody should go find it and listen to it. And at about twenty minutes into the podcast, he essentially says, "Look, Live Nation gets paid to do everybody's dirty work." These aren't exactly the words, but this is the point. We get paid to do the stuff that nobody else wants to get blamed for. We do that, and then we get paid to do that. And there's no reason that an artist should allow, uh, you know, a, a vendor like Live Nation to, to, to mark them up to the extent that they're marking them up, manipulate supply, blame the, quote, bots and, quote, scalpers when they're the biggest bots and scalpers in the industry, and, and take billions of dollars a quarter out of the ecosystem that could be used to support other artists, other venues, other teams, other shows. It's, it, it, it's mind-boggling. And, and there will be another solution, just like, you know, you know, Lyft came after Uber and just like Southwest Reformed Airlines after American Airlines and United. There's going to be another player. There's going to be a reckoning. I feel like I'm Dylan now. There's a new day. Uh, <laughs> and, you know. and, the tr- and the truth is, is those, 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 those technologies, those tools, those ideas are out there. They're just not here in the States. And, and what I always advocate for is a more open ticketing system like you see in England or Australia or a lot of these places um, outside of the U.S. because it creates competition. Right, and it's competition to deliver a better experience for the customer. It's the experience, uh, a competition to uh, create, be most cost effective, to add value. You know, it, it's competition in the most, uh, the best, best terms you know imaginable. Because if one Absolutely. person has all of the power, then you can guarantee that they're going to abuse it. I mean, because I mean that's just an absolute rule of life: is that um, absolute power corrupts absolutely. And if you look at the song kick case, and if you look at the emails that went back and forth when Adele told Live Nation, no, we're selling these tickets to our fan club, and you know, and they, they called her a pig. They called her a pig in their emails. You know, her, her position was, I want my fans to get these tickets, and I want them at a reasonable price. But they, they had to deal with her because she was such a big star. If you can get the momentum in the artist's, to be responsible for their distribution to their fans as opposed to letting them destroy their long, hard-earned reputation like Taylor Swift is in the process of watching happen. If those artists will own that, change will come fast. Yeah, And, and again, that just requires people to speak up. Yeah, and, uh, and, uh, and again, I point back to the great example, like, go, go, go past Pearl Jam. Look at what the Grateful Dead did. Look at what Pearl Jam did, does now. Look at what R.E.M. did, you know. You have to control your relationship with your customers. And I think that's probably a good point to get off at. Um, Eric, how can people find you? I know you left your, you told them eric.fuller at yoseats.com is your email address. And how else yes. can they find you? You're on Twitter, right? At Eric S. Fuller? Yes. And where, anywhere else that people can find you? No, those, those are the places to get hold of me. And, and I'm very responsive. Yeah, no, that's, so, a, that's um, exactly right. Uh, that's how we got together. So um, I want to thank you so much for spending so much time with me today. Um, I hope people can get through this because I think that, you know, it's it's valuable to hear the perspective. Um, it's always valuable to hear a different perspective on the market. And, you know, um, hopefully they'll follow along. And, you know, it's right. Like a lot of these people are industry people that listen to the podcast. But I know that there's a fair amount of fans and consumers that listen as well. And I think that, like, you know, if you do put your money and your, your voice behind like the decisions, if you don't like them or you do like them, you know, you can create change, you know, like economic incentives work a lot. So Eric, thanks for spending so much time. Have a great day, Dave. Such a pleasure. 
Once again, I'd like to thank our guest, Eric Fuller, for taking the time to talk to me about what's going on with his lawsuit against Ticketmaster and all of the other things that we discussed uh, from fan engagement to fan development and all these things. Also, I would encourage you to check out our sponsor, Booking Protect. Visit them at www.bookingprotect.com to find out how your venue can offer your guests peace of mind for their purchases, can create a better customer experience during their buying journey, and how you can create a new revenue stream for yourself. So again, visit bookingprotect.com to find out more. As always, please visit my website, DaveWakeman.com to find out what I'm up to. You can see my daily blog. You can see all kinds of stuff about me. You can follow me on Twitter. That's at David Wakeman. Connect with me on LinkedIn. You can send me an email. It's my name, Dave at DaveWakeman.com. And if you want to get my newsletter that focuses on value, opportunity creation, and more, you can send an email to that same email address, Dave at DaveWakeman.com, with the subject line newsletter and I'll be happy to sign you up. Until next time, thank you for listening, and take it easy.